0: Welcome to Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment, and carbon zero goals. This week, we spoke with the authors of Building for 2050 Low Cost, Low Carbon Homes. That's Alison Crompton and Tom Dollard. So, Building for 2050, it's a research paper that was funded by Bayes. The reason why we were particularly interested is because the sentiments that run through it are very sympathetic. To the positions that we, as our ambitions, find ourselves taking all the time. In particular, it echoed the the knowledge that low carbon needn't be massively more expensive than traditional construction. It contained a significant element of user research, so taken in perspective of designers, suppliers, and the end users of homes. And as regular listeners will be well aware, because we forever bleat on about it, this piece of research put a lot of importance on post occupants performance analysis, as well as, and this was our favourite bit, the attitudes and behaviours of all the other parties too. Again, the suppliers, the people who live in the homes, how did it affect them on a on an emotional basis, I suppose. Anyway, check the report. It's well worth taking a look at. You don't have to read the whole thing either, as we discuss in the the episode. The URL is, if you can't wait, building 2050couk we we'll begin with a, a little bit of vainglorious chatter, which I hope you can excuse. We don't tend to publish praise, but um, we just started recording at the start of the very conversation, and you join us halfway through a sentence, and we'll go straight into it anyway. It's me, Dan, Jeff, and Alex for this one. Um, yeah, I'll let it play. Oh, no, uh, subscribe if you're not already. If you can review, please, five stars. Uh, that's what makes the difference. So we are told, as ever, share. If you get something out of listening to us bleat on like this, you probably know someone else who would also enjoy it. If you happen to be someone who has recently been controlled into listening to the podcast, welcome, enjoy. Or, alternatively, um, sorry. I suppose we're not for everyone. Well, you might not even know yet. Anyway, if that is the case, uh, in keeping with there, the conversation starts, uh, try Adam Buxton's podcast. That's good. I mean, lots of people like it, so you can give that a go. Right. Um, last thing. I've got a note. There were a few sound issues. One of the the mics we were using was picking up a lot of background noise, which we didn't pick up at the time. It's not unbearable. I only mention it because we're aware of it and uh yeah, we will endeavour to do better. So, um, yeah, we'll get into it now. Vainly, you'll hear us join, just as I've asked whether our guests have listened to the podcast and then Jeff gets into his anecdote. I'll let it play. Cheers.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: Have podcast at all?
1: I have, yeah. As soon as you, um, as soon as you sent it over to us, uh, whenever it was, a few months ago. Yes, yeah, but it's great. Love it.
0: Cool. Family. Right. Thank you very much.
1: Subscriber and all that. Like oh, and subscribe. Yeah, as, uh, well, I, Adam that, Buxton says,
0: <laughs> "That's the one." Yeah. Well, I hope you're sharing it. That's our call to action at the moment. Do you, uh, do
2: you, do I you know do, we yeah. had something just to mention the like or subscribe thing? And you're right, Dan. Sorry for cutting cutting you off, but um, you're never sorry, and you always. I know. Say that. Uh, well, I, Irish people say sorry a lot, but we're very insincere. Um, but um, <laughs> uh, but uh, no, my daughter. This shows you how terrible my wife and myself are in terms of our parenting but if, uh, a couple of years ago um what oh i got three years ago maybe when she was probably four years old my wife is recording a little video of her doing something or talking to camera and she at the end of it she 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 said please you know like remember to to like and subscribe you know <laughs> oh my god <laughs>
1: yeah
2: too much uh sorry you know youtube uh sorry yeah. parenting you know uh, amazing, terrible. Amazing. uh
1: yeah yeah
0: it is weird how that sort of stuff gets into the vernacular or the culture it it sort of takes on a different sort of it becomes the rhythm of conversation like these yeah exactly the parasocial relationships that you have whispering in your ear when you do the washing up Uh, (laughs) we uh we met up with a client this morning who uh shout out tanya uh she was a bit confused as to whether we'd spoken about something or she'd been listening to us talking about it yeah. and wasn't sure whether she would joined in the conversation or not.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. So, uh, funny business. Weird yeah. old game, this. Um, but yeah, welcome. Welcome to Zero Ambitions. So, uh, you know the form by now. It's a podcast about, or oh, vote for Alison's benefits, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment and carbon zero goals. And for the sake of the listeners who weren't privy to our... Long rambling fire at the beginning. Um, we're with Tom Dallard, partner of Pollard, Thomas Architects. Apologies, I got that wrong. Tom's from Pollard, Thomas Edwards. We're just talking too quickly. Sorry about that. Uh, Architects and a, a sustainable building design knowledge and Passive House Designer. Uh, contributed to Passive House Plus, I believe, Jeff? Yep.
1: Way um, back when, Yeah. Yeah, early editions of Past Back Pass, when we Pass. were cool, yeah. <laughs> Back before you sold out, yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh, man, yeah. It wasn't worth sticking after the second volume. You know.
1: No, it's still and, very good.
0: Cheers. Um, And uh Alison Crompton, so you're regional director at Built Environment Consultancy, Acom, is that right?
3: Sort of. AECOM's, um US Stock Exchange Multidisciplinary Consultancy, and I'm in the buildings group of it. Within the UK, cool. And your
0: background is energy and energy efficiency in buildings. Is that right?
3: Energy and sustainability over uh, quite a long time, over thirty years of energy and sustainability, applying to buildings and construction. So always the same sector with occasionally different uh, employers, but the same topic, uh, including consultancy and secondments and private sec- public sector work. Yeah.
0: So a lot of experience.
3: A lot of experience.
0: So just uh, the reason why we're a little sketchy, we've not invited on friends or uh, people. They're not enemies. You... They're not no, enemies. No, not no, yet. To... Not yet. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> um, so we've invited you on because we, talk... we wanted to talk about this anyway. So like the insidious misconceptions, false myths and lazy thinking that pervade the sector when it comes to low carbon and low energy building. So mm-hmm. I think, Jeff, well, in fact, um, i would cut to the chase. So you guys are the authors of, or the reason why I stumbled across you guys was because you're the authors of uh, Building for 2050, Low Cost, Low Carbon Homes, this Bayes Research paper that it was published in December, was it, or November? Yep. December. December, cool. So this was something our erstwhile colleague Sarah posted, and it was an article that was addressing how – low carbon housing itself is being held back by a false understanding of what it costs. So you guys have spent like five years looking at this. So who better to come on and join us in a rambling conversation, which, I mean, we were we would have led the conversation. I'm going to misquote Jeff here, but like back when we started things, I remember you using the, uh, the epithetical phrasing that this sector was dominated by uh yogurt-knitting, mung bean-eating hippies. And then we've gone through, back, back, that's back in 2002. And we've learned a lot since then, but then it's come to be sort of the passive house and low-energy building sector could be characterized by that couple that you watched on Grand Designs who threw lots of money in a money pit and then divorced um, there is
2: there is that I, I should say as well Dan we're awful hard on the hippies at times as well I feel like I mean <laughs> I, I I know it's in me to be like that you know I have a lot of pent-up kind of anger um and uh resentments you know and begrudgery and all that kind of stuff um but you know th- there's a lot of good work being done by a lot of a lot of uh, uh a, lot, a lot of pioneering kind of uh hippies in this space too so fair place I'm, I'm not you know I'm not I kind of when I when I, I roll my eyes when I see Harvard houses and stuff you know uh, but yeah credit where it's due you know
0: and uh, just before we get into it uh, Alex is also here hi Alex I don't think you've spoken Hello. on the recording yet um, yeah no no I'm biding my time but uh, I will um folks do you want to tell us a bit about I mean it's a big piece of work it's long do you want to tell us a bit about how you you got into
1: it you now where did it come from yeah, Alison, do you want to start off?
3: Yeah, certainly. So um, it's a piece of work for Bayes, the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy. Uh, tender came out in March 2017 and uh, with a variety of asks and a couple of novel aspects to it. One being it was going to look at real developments of low, low carbon homes from very early stages before construction right the way through to people living in them. So it was always going to be a long project. And the other novel aspect, if you like, was that um, there would be interviews and research and it wouldn't just be social research. It wouldn't just be around measurements and thermographic imaging to decide how these buildings were performing, but we'd actually be asking the people who were going to build them why they were building them, the developers, the motivation, their barriers and drivers. And then we'd be asking people before they moved in, what their expectations were, and then actually interviewing them afterwards about ha- how they found their experience in reality. So this combination of looking right the way across over a number of years at different developments and doing social research as well as site observations, design reviews and um, testing and analysis made it quite a novel project. Yeah. And we sorry, just to add to that, so we what we decided as ACOM, we do a lot of work for um for BAEs as a department, uh, and work that um so for example work on the building regulations part L and part F over the years for a lot of years. Um so they're an established client of ours, but we decided that we really needed a consortium to fulfil the different aspects of this project. We were able to do the uh, technical leadership and the uh, market research, social research in house, and project manage it all. But we brought in other organizations. We brought in PARD Thomas Edwards to lead on the architectural reviews and site visits. Uh, we brought in uh, Four Walls Consulting to lead on the on site monitoring and analysis. And we brought in a company that at the time were called Delta EE and are now called LCP Data. Give us another sort of novel aspect to this, which is their understanding of the energy services sector. So we're not just looking at housing, but we're looking at the the development in providing energy, low carbon energy for these homes. And then, uh, and the and another sort of slightly different aspect of this project is that it's had dissemination associated with it, film, etc. And Paul, um, Thomas said, with have bled on the communications. So we've had a, a multi-stranded consortium to tackle a wider range of project than might be a typical piece of work of research carried out for base.
2: Very, very good. Uh, for, just to be clear, Four Walls, uh, that's Ian Maudit, is it not? Is Ian Maudit, yes. Ian's amazing. He's someone we're going to have to have on the podcast at a stage. He is amazing. He, he really is, I would describe him as as the the expert the leading expert in the UK on on ventilation and buildings, he's monitored more ventilation systems than I think anyone living. Um, and uh, he's he's so much Mr. Ventilation that he, I imagine, you know, I just have, have imagine uh, imagine if he breathed on you, this 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 kind of. This kind of Filtered, uh, perfectly tempered air coming out, you know. Uh, but he's brilliant. No, he's he's um he, he's it's a credit. It a, and I know ACOM I have done work with him before as well. Actually, some very and important we studies. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Yeah. But,
3: but um, I mean, Ian brought more than just ventilation knowledge here. So he was. Um, setting up the monitoring within the dwellings, with AECOM team support. Um, So setting up the monitoring, setting up the external data, external weather collection systems, and really helping out with the analysis, as well as doing fan pressure testing, and measuring the performance of the building, so we could uh, predict U values. And so he, he had much much wider remit. He did all the thermography. They getting up two hours before sunrise to be able to um, see where the, the hot spots of energy leakage are, etc. It's
2: great. It's a formidable team now. You know.
3: Yeah, yeah, and it's a really. I mean, it sounds like an
0: incredible piece of work because one of the the themes of us on this podcast is complaining about people not doing any of this stuff, in particular the post-occupancy analysis, like matching expectations. And the bit that Alex and I admired about the most is not talking to people, like the actual people who live in the building. Um, This is a a perennial issue. So, yeah, like hats off to you. Now, how much of this, the way this was formulated, was dictated by the tender from Bayes? Because, you know, a government agency. Most of it,
3: most of it was was in the tender, um, and and I'm sure it must have said because I'm going back almost six years now. But um, I, and so one of the things I should say as well is that the delivery team has been absolutely consistent all the way through. So one or two people, possibly only one person left, and and Delta E be, have now been bought by someone else, but not until the completion of their. Their role within this project but from a delivery point of view you know tom and i are in the same roles that we had at the start of this project other acom colleagues are as well so there's been this real um not embeddedness but you know it's been the same people this consistency of knowledge which when it came to the write-up obviously it was really helpful because you know when we're trying to remember what developers said three years ago or four years ago with their drivers tom's gone back to his transcripts and records and absolutely checked it out but we've had this we've been we've been collectively on this learning journey for a long time as the same crew if you like
1: I think yeah I think our response to the tender was what won it And I think our experience within industry, the fact that we're our our day job, uh, my day job as an architect, and Alison's day job as a sustainability consultant in an engineering consultancy really added a lot. You know, there were the competition we beat at the tender were the likes of BRE, um, various universities, consortiums. And I think our USP was the fact we were delivering this. In our day jobs you know we myself had delivered zero carbon homes passive house homes we understood what low carbon was and i think that came through in our tender submission you and get then, your hands uh, dirty yes yeah. yeah. exactly we know we know the we work for the, the the big house builders we work for the smes we work for the local authorities we work for the people innovation innovating in this area so i think our our existing knowledge was of that level that i think you know m- many of the findings we possibly could have you know, answered straight off the bat, many of the questions we could have answered straight off the bat. Um, there were some very surprising things we found. I'm sure we'll get on to talk um, about those. But I think the team at the beginning was, I think the advantage was that we had that wide practice and the multidisciplinary aspect, obviously, but the wide um, aspect. And also the innovation in our um, communications was yes. really important. So we, my team at uh, PT led by Tim Metcalf really pushing um i mean the obvious things but i mean six years ago using video wasn't particularly normal so we we, we've done a number of short films that we've pushed out through social media resident interviews on film state you know built interviewing trades on on film you know getting some really lovely footage in in action of of how to install these technologies and what people think of them. And then the resident side as well is, you know, you touched on that. And from my experience of doing this, I've learned so much speaking to residents living in these homes probably more than the hard data you know yeah. and, and poe at the moment it seems uh very technical um building performance evaluation poe is you mm. know the ian mordits of this world it's about what what is the energy monitoring but actually what we found is if you go and speak to the people living in these homes they will tell you that their energy bill is high or that it's stuffy or you know they they are uncomfortable for any reason or it's conversation oh, man, or well, they love it uh, and and it's a great space and it's comfortable and daylight and you know that very, very quickly within half an hour interview, you can find out what a year's worth of monitoring will, will back up. So to do both and and it was very much half half social um technical was a real pleasure for us to do the in-home interviews and um we had blogs, we had um before and after interviews as well, before they moved in in their existing home, and then what it was like three months and then nine months in, and then uh, with the final kind of um and then to counterbalance that with a two and a half thousand resident panel of just people you know you know to counterbalance the the in-depth interviews was really quite um innovative as well i think
3: and the fact that all of the social research came from ACOM, so we didn't have to bring in a third party uh yeah so we managed the remote um 200 2500 people uh consumer interview etc that was all able to be provided Without
1: having to add more people to our consortium. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I can, there,
0: yeah. I can believe that makes a big difference. So, when I mean, did the project stay? Really, my mind sort of boggles at the idea of sticking with a project for five years like this—a research project. So you're like, you're going through from the inception of a development through to it being occupied and actually lived in. And one of the criticisms again that we bleat on about endlessly is, but. People don't monitor post-occupancy, like the quality Mm -hmm. of delivery. I mean, they barely monitor it for a year at the best of times. In terms of, you know, like the the liabilities of the the construction industry itself. You guys are sticking around.
1: I mean the culture is to finish it and and forget about it isn't it move on to the next project sell the house move on that that's the industry uh, endemic culture and i think that's one of the key findings really is that um yes there's a there's an econ- economic barrier uh capital cost um arguably and you can you can we can discuss that there's a there's a financial barrier there's a, um, a regulations barrier There's a legal barrier and then, but really it's a cultural and and it's a knowledge and skills and awareness barrier that that we found was probably the the root cause to this. And the culture in the house building industry at the moment is is not to innovate, is to just do what you did last time. Um, And that goes right from consultants all the way down to the trades um, who who don't want to innovate. They want to just get the job done quickly, um, do the job well enough. Um, to meet the standards and and get signed off. But there's no incentive to go beyond and to innovate. And and I think that's really the systemic problem we have in in the industry there's no incentive for developers to go beyond building regs and so therefore it becomes a maximum not a minimum and and we found you know no major house builders were being were building low carbon on, at scale throughout this project so we had to go to SME builders who were innovating and and housing a housing association in one case who are innovating and schemes that were either grant funded or had other business drivers to push that so i think that in itself is a huge finding um, yeah I mean, it's not surprising. Sorry, Sorry Gwedd. It's not surprising, Sorry. no. <laughs> Possibly, um, but I think the detail of that is surprising. You know that that um, and you know you picked up, you picked up, and others have picked up the the cost perception, the false co- cost perception that is endemic in our culture. And I think it is lazy thinking. I, I like that phrase. It's um, but it's it's this culture of um not wanting it's part of the culture of not wanting to innovate not wanting to make it difficult and wanting to do what you did last time and and really do the job well but um you know not 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 to deliberately build badly to build well but why would you go better than you're being required to by the brief, um, so that cultural is more than the cost. The cost we've shown is is a scale depending on complexity, and that in itself is a cultural issue. Like, do we go for net zero on every house and therefore have quite a complex solution with heat pumps and batteries, PVs, relatively high level of engineering to deliver that, or do you scale that back for a more simple fabric first approach that then is ultimately easier to design a home, you know, not have a home as a power station, but have a have a home as a home. So I think that that side of the uh, cost, basically, we are showing that it doesn't have to be expensive. You can do low carbon homes at very viable, you know, cost neutral rates. So it shouldn't affect viability. In many cases, it won't affect viability.
3: But Dan, to go back to your point about it being a five-year project, there's a couple of points there really. It took time to find suitable case studies and Find people who are doing low-carbon homes, as as um, as Thomas just said. You know, we did try the major house builders. We have got SME builders, but it took time to select the right case studies. There was a much longer list than the ones that have been looked at in detail. We explored the concept of mini case studies to pick up more projects, and in the end, didn't extend the contract for that because it was it wasn't going to comply with government rules of extending a contract if you started bearing the scope a bit too much but it took time to find the case studies and it—I it's mean, a, a, a pretty rigorous selection process and it took and projects were delayed and they were partly delayed due to COVID and they were partly delayed due to things like a shortage of skills on site uh, which was impacted on by booming markets, et cetera. So it was uh, one place quite one, one of the sites quite difficult to get bricklayers at one point, things like that. So, so the projects were delayed a bit by their, in some cases, complexity, or shall we say, their novelty, but then also uh, by other factors such as COVID. And then uh, we were. Intending to monitor them for a whole year afterwards, and even with the five-year project, they have not all been monitored for 12 months. Only one of them was monitored for 12 months, and in practice, monitored for 18 months because we could. Uh, but the others, we haven't got necessarily 12 months data, and we haven't necessarily interviewed people after they've lived there for 12 months, and we haven't necessarily got 10, which was the targeted size of sample of monitoring, etc. Because we we couldn't keep extending the project yeah
1: I, th- I think it shows how hard this sort of monitoring is uh, and it's uh, it's fair enough criticizing the industry for for not doing enough monitoring but when you start doing it you realize the, the the barriers very very real barriers there are to monitoring um especially in private developments with with gdpr and 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 cl- going in collecting the data having the right equipment there's quite often equipment failure so to get 12 months of data you kind of need 18 months and then plus 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 lots of skills so the barriers to doing it were one of the reasons why we didn't get more case studies
0: yeah yeah it's i mean this is something we've come up working on the the low energy buildings database project that we've been trying to address because uh yeah man it's it's really hard like finding a way what we've what we've found as well is something that was implicit in what you said there's if there's no money to do it There's absolutely no way of doing it. So with the best will in the world, GDPR permitting, there are ways around that. But unless someone's paying for it to happen, in this case, Bayes, like Mm -hmm. it just drops off a cliff. Agreed, yeah. And the other issue, like an industry-wide one, is the proprietary nature of data. People hoard it. And they don't share it, and they do not with it. It's... And I say that
4: that's what irks me: that uh, people can put in their, their smart thermostats in their homes and just give away all that data just for the sake of perceived comfort of of having something that you can control with your your phone, and yet there are massive barriers to doing this for the good of the actual industry and, and learning from it. And that I find is a real problem. Uh, yeah. It's it's a cultural problem as well, I think, as as you were you were mentioning.
3: And and you know our, our um residents were actively engaged. We asked them to provide a monthly diary and things like that, and you know to accept that they've got window sensors and um, sensors in their properties. So there's a recruitment process for people as well. So, you know, not everybody is going to say yes to it all. So as as, as um, Tom says, it's a challenge. But the one of the benefits from having such a long programme um, has been that some of the more complex designs have been further re- refined by the developers, and we were able to talk to them about how they might be doing things differently uh, if they didn't have grant funding on later schemes. How they might have simplified their um, and commercialised their their designs, and so there was more intel in trends than there would have been if we were stopping once the hacks were built.
0: Yeah, and the the observa- the act of observe uh, the act of observation. Uh, impacted the measurable results in uh, some sort of
1: yeah yeah. <laughs> the, there's a certain amount
2: of that, yeah, for sure. Yeah, they, they uh, actually got feedback from 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 their their clients and 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 learned from it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: and, and and feedback from us the the, the consultant team you know we, we sat down with them uh, many occasions but um after the results came in so to speak and 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 I think they found that the developers found that the most useful part of the whole process um to get these construction site observations back which was my team looking at their design doing a design review getting the details going to the site have, have you installed it as the detail? What what have you changed? Has has anything swapped out? So, you know, the obvious things we'd see flexi duct chucked in. It should be rigid duct. Um, We saw insulation being swapped out. We saw details slightly changing, um, air tightness targets not being met. We saw bits of thermal bypass, all the sort of standard performance gaps that we've seen in other research projects. we, We saw, we witnessed, and we're able to then take them through that and then we, we we put that back into the energy model and we could show them how that affected so we can show them how how does airtightness going from one to three in or 3.5 in, in one case how does that affect your your energy model um, you know if, if you've done a detail and it's different from the design there's more of a thermal bridge how does that affect your total um, energy and your energy bills and they found that really interesting you could see them start connecting the dots around uh, design and construction quality and, and overall energy use so that that for me is well was i think um a great process to go through and almost showed i think that being so valuable showed that again this idea that not necessarily having to get 12 months data but having a site observations quality assurance method with a with a handover test whether that's a thermography that we carried out or another air test a second air test or possibly some other building performance evaluation tools at handover would provide a lot of value suddenly you, the contractor would be incentivized. They'd know they're going to be tested in a more rigorous way you could have. And, and that that I'm really positive, I think. will. I'm optimistic that things like the smart HTC, the, um, the heat transfer coefficient, we're starting to see become a bit cheaper to do. Um, you, know, you can get it done for a few hundred pounds now instead of thousands. Um, that will start to change industry. As soon as there's a test for developers and contractors to meet, they will they will meet that. Whereas at the moment there's no test, there's there's nothing apart from a theoretical SAP model and, and an air test. So th- th- this is the crux of the problem. As soon as we get a cheap way of testing homes um in 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 performance, in use, then then we will have solved or hopefully have solved a lot of these issues. Smart HTC is
2: another, uh, the crowd behind that build test solutions, I think, um, are another Mm. organization that we have to have on. Uh,
1: This is Mm. a. a Yeah, Luke Smith was at the launch last night. Yeah, I was speaking to him a lot um, from BTS. Yeah. 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 So they're one of many. They're they're not one of many. There's one one of a handful um, uh, through the SMETA project, the base SMETA project, who have a solution for Smart HTC, um, which is a much, very, very uh, quickly, it's it's a much simplified method of the coheat test, so you can do a very rapid coheat test um, with various techniques. Kind uh, of works out
2: what your actual heating demand is for the for for, for the building, and they, don't they have yeah. a way of devising um, separating ventilation heat losses from infiltration as well? Yeah,
1: it de- yeah, it depends on what you measure, and the more data, the better. But they can do it on um, uh, a postcode um, internal temperature um and energy bills basically for six weeks so you you can do it that or you can do a um an overnight mini co-heat test there's various methods but it will give you a fairly objective um htc which is what what we're trying to heat loss coefficient is what we're trying to get i think there
3: were a couple of things that are worth picking up there tom one is that we made it sound like all the building all the construction practices were terrible and that's not fair And a lot of people think that site teams will struggle to do anything innovative, and that wasn't our experience. People were—they might struggle a little bit to know what to do, but they were up for it. There wasn't a big resistance. I didn't think from the site teams from the interviews, although they were building something novel. I don't think they were anti doing that, And, and. one thing we saw which was a really good example was one of the developers saying we know we're asking you to put in an innovative heating system to their MEP contractor and saying look guys we're all in this together we are not going contractual on you we want a successful scheme so we are you know there'll be some bumps in the road here but we want to work with you and um, that cooperation was exemplary and really helped rather than saying, well, you know, we're going to use you on this project. We don't care if you lose a load of money. We'll just pick a different contractor next time. You know, it was the the antithesis of that. Mm -hmm. And it had a good outcome as a result in terms of working together to work through something that's new.
0: Yeah. So this is one of the themes that's coming out of other conversations we're having. So in the the day-to-day work that we're doing about retrofit in particular, but any sort of frontier space in construction which you could easily class this, is that uh, collaboration is essential because everyone's got to learn from everyone. And in a, a relatively siloed industry, because as much as everyone has to work together, you know, you've know you got different phases and waves, waves, teams of people, contractors come in, often from different companies. They sort of might know, it, know one another to an extent, but they might not be working together. They might be in conflict. I mean, I've worked on site myself Uh, getting pissed off about the the last group of lads not finishing up in time so you're held up so you're stuck on site kicking your heels you might be anyway or get into bitching about the the past um Mm. but in these spaces where there is an innovation element like folks seem to start enjoying it Mm. because they get to use the brains a bit they feel engaged they feel like there's a bit more value to the to their input in the project they're not just doing the same thing again which is counterintuitive, again, to my experience of the construction industry a lot, where people just want to do the same thing again, which I suppose is why you couldn't find the the innovation in the large developers, mm-hmm. because it's a highly productized business model there. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I found really interesting reading this was the barriers to low-carbon building, or like the, the buyers of low-carbon buildings, or the residents, the homeowners... The barriers that they perceived, because I think you list them, uh, I can't remember if it's in the the executive summary, but it was in the main report, (laughs) where there's a few stood out because they feel applicable to the industry as a whole, certainly the large-scale industry. Now, more than 60% of residents and potential residents cited cost as a main barrier. A lack of availability of low-carbon homes where people want to live, a lack of awareness of low-carbon homes, uh, it's not easy to identify their homes or their features when buying or renting. Concerns about performance, reliability and maintenance of the technologies used. The appearance of technologies and how much space they might take up. And fear of snagging issues and completion date slippage. And to be fair, you can level all of those critiques at the existing domestic sector meeting large scale house builder industry. You know, there's, there's some standout folks, shout out Robbie at d who are doing different things, at all different price points in the market. But like, man, I looked at new houses when I was moving house recently, and uh, you're going to get a better quality insulation right enough. But mm-hmm. uh, what else are you going to have to compromise on? And are you going to be able to get the snagging fixed? Well,
2: well, well, this is it. There used to be a story. Um, I won't say who told me this it was the case i i can't forget for, forgive me i i i'm so stuck in my passive uh, house ivory tower that i sometimes i don't often lower myself to familiarizing myself with the requirements of the building regulations um <laughs> but um when it comes to certainly in the, in the uk um you, you what's your backstop for air tightness is it, is it five is that right or is it or is it, no. is it it's worse
1: it's eight is it or it's worse yeah it's 10 it's, or it no. used to be 10 i think it's prosing eight yeah but okay. five is a kind of average
2: but and five once, once you go once yeah. you go below five you have to do mechanical ventilation isn't that right um
1: Low three, I think, is M E V or M V H R. Yeah, I think you're still okay on intermittent extract fans um, if uh, if you're at five. Well, what I what I yeah.
2: what I'd been told by somebody who would know, a consultant in the space, is that uh, about these projects where the in the UK where the house builders were deliberately get, getting well, they, they were consistently getting results just north of the stop, the backstop for um for. Uh, where you were, I guess, it would be three point zero one. Um, where you're required to put in mechanical ventilation, and how do you do that? You you can't plan to get there. It was described to me as this this Stanley knife approach to air tightness, whereby you get you do good levels, do good good workmanship from an air tightness perspective, get a result of whatever it is, two or two and a half, um, and then during the test you you get allowed to go around um and maybe slash a hole just big enough in the roof membrane to get you you know to 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 increase the leakage rate so that you don't have to put mechanical ventilation in uh shocking kind of stuff and you you, you know the consequences of that from a um a, a a building physics perspective you'd be very worried about but ah, uh, anyway I, I shouldn't be talking about the bad things you know too much the, 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 the it's um it's positive if you're seeing that there's an appetite for change there uh, in the industry you know uh, at least at a practitioner level um, and that if it, you know if it's just market is it like what's conspiring against that is it is it just market forces is it just um uh is it is it is ignorance part of us or in lack of education in this regard or is it is it is it that you know uh, people that, that it's that it's so price sensitive or it's been so price sensitive uh uh, you know, up until like, who knows what will happen now with with, uh, with the, the way the housing market is, is is heading at the moment, with prices coming down. Um, but is it so price sensitive that people are just building to the bare minimum minimum of building regulations, and punters and aren't in a position to be able to, to 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 choose what they want?
3: I think it depends how forward looking they are, and whether they say, "Well, it, it's evident that we're going to have to change. We know we're going to have to deliver better performance." Let's start building with off-site manufactured panels. That's going to give me a better U-value. Yeah, you know, let's 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 get a USP of being a low-carbon home. So it, it really depends. I think it comes it, it comes from two places. It comes from planners, and we see this ever such a lot in London with the London plan, um, which is not individual houses, but will be apartment blocks and um, regeneration schemes, et cetera. So that's really pushed energy performance because every home has to be net zero carbon, and you pay carbon offsets. If not, if it's of this scale, to be referred to the London Mayor, we see it in other um, in other local authorities as well, maybe external and places like that. That are uh, uh, Bristol that are taking an initiative and setting requirements in planning, or it's down to the developer. And if it, if the developer is a social landlord, the, the one in our case had. A real desire and interest in innovation, but also concerned around fuel poverty, and that some of their residents were saying, "We can't believe we've got low carbon homes. We thought it was only for rich people. You know Mm -hmm. how amazing that we're being offered social housing that should have good air quality and uh, be comfortable, uh, etc. You know, we we can't quite believe this. This is this is amazing. We didn't feel entitled to this, which is a which is." a sad thing to hear, but, um, you yeah, know, so they would, it, if you take the consequences of they didn't feel entitled to it or it's the developer saying this is a niche market, I need to get on it, or it's going to happen anyway. Let me learn now. Let me bring other partners in now. Let's let's have an offer because it's not going away. Well, it, what you're saying there is
0: not surprising at all. I mean, one of the, the key features of low-carbon building often, or one of the emergent properties of it, is often comfort of a degree that you don't get if it's well insulated and it's got sufficient levels of airtightness and ventilation you don't have the same problems that you have elsewhere either mold or leaky buildings and culturally this is something we don't feel entitled to like mm-hmm. the two examples i used earlier about the the hippies and grand designs both of those archetypes they exist in a position of privilege like they ain't working class people. Working class people didn't have the time to be either, really. Mm. So you yeah, you're you're raising expectations for people. And I find that an interesting thing because in the the behavioral parts, which obviously being UX person, that's what I looked at, like the end user, one of the barriers that were referenced there was people being concerned or the user of the building being annoyed by having to change their behavior in how the building was used in terms of heating it or hot water was the one that came up the most and having to change the way they operate a building because the changing way or the way the operation of one's home is changing is set against like a model that was based or the a model of experience that was based on cheap energy, where the and carbon quite,
3: cost was outsourced. And quite possibly instantaneous hot water by a combi boiler.
0: Yeah. Man, that is going to be the hardest thing to give up. I struggle with that idea. Hmm. Um, would these issues not be mitigated by the comfort, or did you find these issues were mitigated by comfort?
3: In part, people just said they found would unknown. Hmm. So... There were examples of things like uh, if the window was open, then the heating would be turned off because this, this is something that Tom and I are quite passionate about, is if you are designing a home to be low carbon, that's one thing, if you're designing a home to be lived in successfully and happily by someone who adopts sustainable living practices, et cetera, and who might well turn the heating off before opening the window anyway or turn it down or whatever the user needs to be part of the design considerations from the beginning. So if you get overly obsessed with low carbon rather than low bills, low energy use, user experience, then you might say, well, I'm going to hit my carbon target if I make sure someone can never turn their heating up beyond 22 degrees. Others may feel, well, I'd like to have it more than 22 degrees. Nobody told me it was going to be constrained at that. And yes, I know it's more expensive. That's my choice. So more often it wasn't so much the the limitation but the lack of information about this limitation. So the failure to manage expectations. Yeah. Um and yeah, you know, sure. and, and it goes the other way as well. A lot of people were saying, Oh, I'm not sure I'm gonna like not having gas cooking, but actually. They were fine with it. They got used to induction cooking. It was fine. But they knew from the outset they wouldn't have gas cooking. So that wasn't a surprise. So it's about being upfront with people about how this house might be different, how uh, turning on an air source heat pump to the same timing regime that you might do a gas boiler, 6.30 to 8.30 in the morning and, and I don't know, 7.00 till 11.00 at night it might not be the best time because that might not be when ambient temperatures are high. And if you've got means of storing heat within the property through the cylinder or whatever, there might be better ways of running it. But if you don't tell people engage people, then they they run something in the way they've always run it with an expectation of um, it's – and if you give somebody two bathrooms, you just have one bathroom, they're going to think there's endless hot water. Otherwise, why would you put in two bathrooms? So it's just about managing expectations. They I say, the, the gas cooking is a good example. They knew they weren't having gas cooking. They weren't sure about induction cooking. They got used to it. It was fine. A lot yeah. of them had never had MDHR but, before and had a nervousness um, over it. Would it been too noisy? But they
1: they were fine with it. Yeah, there are some good examples I think the induction cooker is is a great one where they they accepted and they and then the feedback was great. They loved it in in when they were using it. The 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 issue I think where we're treading the line between usability and whether it's a design fault or whether it's something that the residents need training for, I think is really interesting. I think on this, with the hot water, we did find, you know, instances of the hot water cylinder linked to the heat pump being undersized. um, And, and that, being taken from the SIBC guidance for sizing hot water cylinders, you know, and it was, you know, one 150 litres, let's say, which for a for a, you know, three bed house wasn't wasn't big enough. And they're finding that the refill times wasn't quick enough and it had to go over to the immersion. So the hot water bill then ramps up. So in that in my mind, that's a that's a design failure. It should have, you know, uh, been a larger hot water cylinder with probably a quicker reta- refill time a quicker a larger um um heat exchanger in, in the cylinder or a smarter cylinder so there's instances where i think designers need to developers need to change and we need to make homes easier to use easier to um more convenient so they can have you know two baths in a row or a couple of shower- three or four showers in a row if they need to and there's instances where you know clearly there, there's more communication and more Edu- I hate that word education, but it's more um, communication handover, a better handover, and and you know communication to the resident on how to use these technologies. I,
4: I certainly for think on, on that point though that uh, the use of the, the term ethical gamification could be useful. Um, gamification mm. has got a bad rap because it's basically used nowadays to control people and make them do things uh, that is probably not the best in their best interest. But it doesn't mean that it can't be done for good, as it were and gamification is is a great way of you know providing feedback and showing people how to do things and giving them validation that it is the right thing to do uh, again it doesn't mean that you have to force them into only having one one shower a day or, or you know because the, there's not enough hot water but it's a way to encourage people and show them through education but in a way that it actually is reinforcing their own sense of success uh, rather right. than making them doubt their own, their own own capability of managing it it's not supposed to be a complex system it can be a complex system but it shouldn't be So ethical gamification is potentially a good way of describing what you're talking about is it is training, but in a way that really involves uh, human beings and adults, not people who are going back to school to learn how to use it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, And I think also I'd add in here at this point, um, you know, to to, to take this point uh, about people having to suffer uh, the the. You know uh, the the sacrifice of, of 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 having hot water available or whatever. We shouldn't really be you know we, we should be able to get buildings right. I mean, it's shocking if if uh, even such a reputable and you know uh, mainly a, you know uh, of an awful lot, very high regard for Sibcy, for instance. But if their guidance, for instance, is not. Um, been adjusted to take account of that reality of people wanting uh more amenity in terms of hot water um that's that, that, that's that's shows you how far we need to come in terms of getting this kind of feedback loops go- going you know uh, feedback from from actual occupants of buildings um and just on, on that hot water point i know one architect um recently on a on a, a certified green uh housing project that we published uh, a while ago um uh, that had a bunch of different targets to meet, including water. And uh, uh, when we were getting the information for the project, uh, he made a point to the fact that there were no baths included because you can't have baths in green buildings. Um, and um, I just thought, you know, th- this is a social housing project. Uh, and, you know, uh, I-, I managed to bring him back around to thinking, actually, maybe these people might need... Um, a little bit of luxury in their lives at times you know uh, and um i think of my own son with a, with a, a eczema and a, a prescribed a daily emollient bath you know um you have to kind of we can't be selling people this image of 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 uh, sustainable living as being miserable uh, austere you know it's it's got to be giving something back it, otherwise we're on a high. there's nothing you know
0: Well, this comes to the the energy part. So thank you for the segue, Jeff. Uh, Magnificent work.
2: I didn't know I was doing it. (laughs) Well,
0: there's no reason we shouldn't be able to enjoy the luxury of a bath if we get the energy infrastructure right, if we get the insulation, hot water retention, if we use the energy that is abundantly out there in the right way, if we develop the infrastructure. Man, bath's for everyone. You know, bread and roses, the lot, champagne. Let's have it. There's no reason it shouldn't happen. But you described that underdeveloped energy infrastructure. I presumed, in reading it, on a a macro scale rather than a micro scale, was the biggest issue, or a big issue. I mean, do you want to? I mean, this might be uh, this might be your specialist area, Alison.
3: Oh, it's it's um, two things here. One is that that we concluded that lots of innovation is happening. In the energy services sector, whether that's through services or products, and there seems to be a lack of knowledge about what's happening in the energy service sector, amongst those that build houses. So they're not, we are seeing a change, there's no doubt about it, over the course of this project we're seeing changes. And we know that some energy companies are getting engaged at the master planning level to make it clear what their offer is and that maybe they could manage demand across 500 homes, say, and therefore the amount of upsizing of uh, a substation might not be necessary. You know, because there's going to be um a third party managing the demand. Whereas if you leave everybody to decide what time they turn their air heat pump on and everybody does it at seven in the morning, you've got a bigger draw than if some do it at quarter to seven and some, you know. So it's around third party management um to try and avoid some peaks. Uh the benefits of storage and whether that's thermal or um, electric storage and whether you do that communally or on a building by building basis and just the discussions with the energy services sector are not necessarily happening so at the top level companies are thinking about it electrical providers are thinking about it on one of the schemes because it wasn't a very big scheme at all then the innovative thinking that might be happening at a master planning level from that company, when you go with an application of a few dwellings, you're treated in the same way as conventionally, and then that led to a, a, a problem in terms of the electricity supply that probably would have been avoided if it had been a much bigger scheme, simply because uh, there'd be no, more knowledge of innovative approaches happening within the scheme and what their energy demands might be. They to, it's all to do with their phasing and they ended up with two-phase electricity. Um, and uh which, which will be which is something which actually enabled them to have an EV supply, but is actually another consideration. As we move to EV supply and you end up with more demands on um, housing electricity draw, and you have electric cooking, um, you Mm. start to – the electricity portion per property, the kilowatt rating um, is much higher. And how do you manage that? But let's not find that out a long way down the line. Let's find that out earlier by talking to electricity companies and also working out – whether the sort of hive, nest or whatever approach can be done centrally for people because not everybody wants to be really engaged with learning how to operate their home. Some would be more than happy to say, oh, I just want hot water at eight in the morning and I want a warm home all day and I don't want it ever going below 21. But actually, I'd quite like it quite chilly in the bedrooms at night. Um, I'm not sure how you're going to achieve that in a well-insulated property. But, you know, this is how I want to live. If you can sort it all out for me, it's energy as a service as far as I'm concerned. It's a bit like me having, I don't know, a, a car on a PCP or or having my TV via, a, um, you know, a third-party provider or whatever. I'm happy for it to be a service. And don't actually, want to own my air source heat pump, I'm happy that a bit of my monthly payments go towards the replacement and when it needs replacing, you'll come and do it and you'll take all that away from it so there's there's the energy infrastructure argument um and there's the um and the the role that energy services companies can have in taking the hassle away from some people that would be what they'd like
0: yeah yeah I mean so uh, definitely sidestepping the uh the embodied carbon issues of batteries and uh, the, the rare earth metals and the like. i um, presuming that there are ways to ad- address these without uh, putting all the cost onto the global South or pretending like it isn't happening. Um, is Bayes going to listen to you? Like what's the reception been like from government? Like, cause change of this sort can't come from the market. This was when we had Adrian Lehman and Bill Borders on they said 30 40 years ago all they got was we want market based solutions from government and they couldn't give them market based solutions because it doesn't work like that the market itself is too ignorant as you've described and i don't mean i mean that in a neutral sense that wasn't used as an epithet uh it's too slow and it doesn't know what the the market in terms of the providers and the consumers they don't know what they want like no one had that no one sorry to borrow your analogy alex uh No one knew they wanted an iPhone. If you've asked them for a flat box that they could put the finger at, no one would have cared. It was the stuff of sci-fi. But now, like, oh, imagine that. Sci-fi having a comfortable home. Like an energy efficient home. Oh God, but heaven for Fend. Yeah. So is Bayes gonna facilitate this, do you reckon? Are they listening?
3: It's not just Bayes, is all I'd say. Because building regs come from um, Department for Levelling Up, Homes and Communities, who were very much um, part of who we were presenting our findings to, and they, I think, government policy based on evidence is the is the way it's going, rather than whim. And what they wanted from this project was evidence, and there's lots of findings in it. That, that sounds exciting.
0: Uh, Sorry? Uh, that sounds exciting. A government looking at evidence in this day and age. We've moved on from Gov's to crying of
2: experts. Well, he's the secretary of state, isn't he, for levelling up? He um, is. Yeah. So maybe he's having a about turn in that regard. Put it put to put it another way, uh, Alison. Do you think, uh, based on on the findings of this report, do you think um, uh, that policymakers, if if what if what is required um, is uh, to to raise the bar higher in terms of of you know minimum standards and their building regulations, for instance. Do you think policymakers can be confident um, that that will be better received than they might have anticipated? That the industry will be able to to adjust, and that the industry will kind of, um, you know, uh, will be able to deliver?
3: I mean, I suppose I, w- I would hope so. The biggest barrier and the biggest driver was building regulations and policy that came out as you know we want a level playing field from people who want to go beyond the... We don't want to be penalised and lose out on um, plots because we want to spend a bit more on the properties and therefore lose out. So we, we, you know, we have to pick our battles. Um, we can't go for every site with a with a low carbon homes offer, admitting that there is some extra cost because uh, we don't want to have a very low success rate. And certainty is what industry once and we yeah, we see it in the PV market, not PB, EV, electric vehicle market, that once certainty was given around when you couldn't have internal combustion engine um uh, vehicles anymore, huge, huge changes in towards electric vehicles. We see, you know, petrol filling station companies changing their models, saying, well, how are we going to keep somebody entertained for 30 minutes, not two minutes, it's not splash and dash, it's You know, it needs to be an attractive place to hang out for a little while. You know, the, the market is responding to a very definite signal, and it's obvious in other sectors. And so what we were able to say is industry is looking for certainty over a reasonably long time horizon so that they can change. And if they're going to make a step change, they only want to do it once. And that step change can be, could be, I don't know, the way they learn about the energy services industry, it could be upskilling people, it could be upskilling their sales staff, it could be improving their handovers, it could be halving the energy demand of a property, whatever it is, uh, engaging in um, microgrids or whatever. They don't want to do that and start to get good at it and then find, well, that wasn't enough of a change or actually we don't want you to do this at all anymore. We've now decided to go for... District heating with hydrogen or individual gas boilers or whatever. So what they want, what industry wants is certainty so that they can then make the changes, but which need to be step change, but it, they only want to do it once. And I hope that we conveyed that quite strongly, that it wasn't us saying it as researchers, it was industry saying we need some certainty and we need some certainty over a relatively long period of time so that we can upskill
1: and invest and bring our supply chain with us i think they've um i think they have listened um and i think they asked for evidence to to inform policy and, and we're now seeing the future home standard in in the uk come forward for consultation in in the spring uh, you know that's set for 2025 so i think that's in place and, and the recent net zero review by chris skidmore has confirmed that and has called for you know that to 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 happen and for consultation to happen as soon as possible. So that's going ahead in the spring. And then it's also uh, Skidmore review has also asked for a net zero performance certificate as well, beyond that. So they're they're calling to go beyond the future home standard. And then the detail of that, um, apart from looking at more accurate EPCs, they're looking at, you know, 2030 and 2035 beyond the future home standard. So I think I think they are listening to that. And then Alison's right, so d will take forward part L and, and Bayes Bay's look at SAP. So I think they, they have, you know, got a new SAP coming out, SAP 11, um, that should be addressing some of the concerns that we found on this project on, on SAP. And then I think, so I think in terms of the evidence that we've produced now useful, I think it gives government confidence that industry can, has already started rolling these out at a small scale, you know, a scale of 50 homes. And even without regulation, you know, even without incentives, there's this is happening at a small scale. So I think it shows that this is happening. It provides evidence that it's that is cost viable. Um and really that there's less and less reason not to uh regulate for this. So I think I think we're encouraged so far by what we've seen in the recent Skidmore review, net zero review, um, and and the future homes standard being slated for twenty twenty five. So
3: and, and, Lots of you know, positive stuff. Some of the interviews that were being done—they were being done before Part L 2021 came out—and they were all, all, each one was an all-electric scheme before there was even the carbon
1: uh, factor benefit within Part L 2021 of being an all-electric scheme. Yeah, I mean, very simply, this is these are four case studies that meet the Future Home Standard, there are thereabouts. They're all electric schemes. To half of them, you could say, fabric first. The rest are kind of loosely fabric first. So th- there's designs and a supply chain there to deliver, uh, you know, to the future home standard quite clearly, which could be scaled up. So I think our findings around cost, I think we've, you know, shown evidence that 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 can be is not as um, a prominent a barrier uh, that industry perhaps has perceived. Um, knowledge and skills, I think, remains a a, a clear barrier. And that's throughout the industry, designers, clients, all the way through to uh, installers and commissioners. So I think that's still, and to scale up, you know, things like air tightness, um, I think the government hasn't been listening about that. I think Bayes and d are very much concerned about technology, Um, heat pumps you've seen. So again, the, the Net Zero review is focusing on heat pump scale up um yeah. no talk of ventilation scale up mvhr for example there's no talk of air tightness skills no talk of insulation um quality that so the fabric first has been lost out of the energy efficiency argument and that's got to be number one so i think that's something that possibly they could listen more and and have you know a training scheme and set some really good cultural initiatives around air tightness and ventilation
2: well yeah i mean if they're after actual Performance and, you know, actual low carbon buildings, they kind of need to, right? You know, um, we can't, we can't be thinking about silver bullet approaches. We need those technologies, but we need to find a way to, to take as much demand off the grid as we can to enable them to be able to deliver and perform well, you know. Um, exactly
1: and to be cheaper built you know reasonable bills you know that you you can't have that without energy efficient fabric and so i think that you know one of the findings from this project is that you know a lot of these case studies are low carbon well they are low carbon um they're not all of them low bills or as low bills as they hoped and that shows the issues of what happens when you add a heat pump to a fairly standard fabric um and design without really battening down on airtightness and and thermal bridging, you get you know relatively expensive heating. So I think they've seen that, and I think that is starting to click in industry, and people are understanding that actually it shouldn't be about carbon anymore. We shouldn't be talking about operational energy in carbon terms. That should be an infrastructure and national challenge. On mm. the home, it should be energy efficiency, energy and bills, and comfort should be the indicators that we should be designing for. And obviously then it's resident-centered at, at the you know, we should be focusing on what is best for the resident, number one. Um, what is best for the resident, it's a comfortable, low um, bills home um that works on you know all the other design parameters such as daylighting, security, health and well-being parameters. Sounds very logical, yeah. So I'm quite I'm quite optimistic. Um, I mean, we're lucky that both ACOM and PT um, my company are working on part l so we're the, we're assisting deluck on the future home standard um for the consultation and then we will be helping dlock write that new policy so we're in a good position to kind of keep um pushing on that one so um yeah optimistic
0: well that's good to hear like uh, uh so if it goes
1: wrong blame us basically
0: <laughs> no problem we'll have you back on uh, you'll be no, explorer. it's the sha- the,
2: sh- the shadowy mandarins, the you know, uh, the, the, the the I'm thinking of the thick of us or or um, or yeah. guest minister or whatever um, who run who are going to run rings around you. That's that's who we'll we'll really blame. Yeah,
0: yeah, we'll get Jeff to compose a, a repulsive uh, column in the magazine in a sort of Clarkston Megan style. Yeah, on the, on on the failings
1: on the failings of the future Home Standard. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> Um, right, so seeing we're coming
0: up on time, who needs to read this, and which bits do they need to read because it is long?
1: Mm, good point. Um, well, we we had the 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 second slightly more informal launch last night at our offices, and we had Lynn Sullivan, the chair of Good Homes Alliance, um, respond to our report and you know she said this should be mandatory reading for anybody involved in the house building industry whether designers um uh, consultants or even uh commissioners and installers so i think there are bits relevant for for each discipline and each, each whatever part of the process you play so i'd encourage everybody to have a look at the um the website we've got an executive summary there four page with some diagrams that that's the first place to start and we've got some films there the, the first film was only five minutes or so that explains the project and then go to the exact summary and see how relevant you think it is and then um you know the case studies i'd start with the case studies look at how they've been designed look at some of the performance metrics and then it's really going to depend on what you're interested in whether you interested in ventilation or or um fabric or design or construction um there's sections on on each one of those so yeah mainly it's the, the 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 industry uh you know that it's an industry focused report and um, there's a lot there for policymakers but it's more kind of hidden it's really more about what can industry do
0: yeah i think for if there are any journalists listening as well the table seven that gives you all the key findings that you could <laughs> yeah. generate some easy copy out of that like fill your yeah desk.
1: yeah as has been done by, I think, Building Magazine has done, a, and a few others have done an easy article. um, Picking up on some of the things that we didn't really consider were that important, like the cost. But I get, you know, in retrospect, cost is obviously a key barrier. So, Alison, I don't know if you've got any feelings on who should be reading this. I think it should be mandatory for everybody in the industry, but maybe I'm biased.
3: Um, I I think one of it's... One of the interesting aspects is the, the user feedback because you don't normally get it. We started off saying that at the beginning, didn't we? So, mm-hmm. so reading what people said, um, albeit this is only a snapshot of what they said, is quite helpful to, to do what we really what we are all passionate about, which is we want low-carbon like homes, but actually, as we keep saying, we want the designer at the beginning not to, to be obsessed with a number relating to carbon such that they forget about the utilisation of it, the usability of it, the the fact that people still actually want some storage space in their home, they don't want it all filled with kit or whatever. Mm. And so by reading some of the resident comments, we hope that what we're trying to um, promote is people think about the occupant from the first point, not a carbon target, not a grant for innovation funding and how to squeeze the most out of this not what makes an interesting research project um, to test some innovation innovative low-carbon technologies but what makes a good home for someone to live in that they can understand that can perform as the designer intends and the other the other kind of takeaway i think is that um people have an idea it's the same with district heating actually in district heating everyone thought well the network loses 10%. The network doesn't lose 10%. The network loses a certain watts per metre length of pipework. And as the overall demand comes down and down, it's not a percentage. It's it's an absolute, and that absolute becomes a more significant absolute. And it's the same with low-carbon low homes. If you've got fairly high air change rate and you've got um, fairly poorly performing walls... Leaving out, not addressing the thermal bridging um, in front of the patio door doesn't make that much difference. If you've got a really well-insulated property um, and you don't seal around the surfaces, people are going to notice the draft. And if you don't put that thermal bridge in by the patio door, that's going to be the cold spot and everything is so warm and comfortable. And that can just make the difference between... uh, And when you're heating with electricity, albeit... um, you've got the efficiency of the heat pump in between when you're heating with a very expensive fuel just a little bit more heat loss or a little bit of poor advice about opening windows closing windows trying not to keep old habits in new well insulated properties you know it will be better ventilated through the mvhr you don't need to get up and fling all your windows open so through advice and through attention on site you can start to make the bills closer to what they were predicted to be. And actually, if you like, a bit of sloppiness, which wasn't that significant before, whether that's sloppiness in handover or site practices or even design coordination about the length of ductwork from your MVHR units to the supply and extract. That sloppiness, for want of any better phrase, or lack of attention to detail, is much more significant when the overall demand is lower and the cost of the energy you're using per kilowatt hour is higher. So that's the kind of takeaway. And whether you just get that sense from from only reading the executive summary or whether you need to be looking at the bits around construction detailing and the bits around comments from residents to pick that up, or whether you just get that sense from going straight to key findings table seven, I'm sorry, I'm too close to the report to be yeah. able to, to tell you
1: that. I think that's a good, really good point to to kind of wrap it up. And I, I think i uh, what didn't make it in the report is what the developers of the case studies are doing now. And I think it's really positive to see that you know they're all still in business. Number one, that they've improved their design solutions, and, and they've really taken some of our lessons on board. So, for example, um, the developer for marmalade lane is now um delivering passive house instead of what they did before which was the acb standard the 35 kilowatts or something like that so passive house light shall we say they've gone full passive house they've reduced a lot of the inefficiencies of the plant so they've got less radiators for example less controls a smaller heat pump because they've gone for a higher fabric standard of certified passive house, mm-hmm. they've gone for certification because they want the quality assurance on site and they realize the sensitivity of that that model. Um, so that's one example. Another example, the developer on, on, on the italic Road site, major developer, is now looking at that system, that ambient loop in, in, in new sites. So they've seen the benefit of using that ambient loop. Mm-hmm. And they've also taken the criticism of the fabric design, that they hadn't coordinated it as well with the services. Um, so I think that is a key finding you know, communication and coordination between fabric and services is is critical. And getting it's, the detail right and attention to detail just becomes so much more important as alison said
2: it, it's great i mean it's it, it there's reasons for optimism here you know and i think it's i think
3: awesome.
2: the, the takeaway that that i, I get from, from 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 talking to you all today and that may, that i think you're you're getting at is that uh there's nothing to be scared of here you know the industry can <laughs> uh if if people can shake themselves out of their inertia uh the the, the uh the industry can engage with this stuff and can kind of approach uh how how buildings are built in a, a design and constructed in a different way um uh more open kind of way uh and um and uh, and benefit from it from that mm-hmm. and start start feeling you know the whole industry can start feeling you know a lot better about itself in terms of the, of, yes. of its role you know mm-hmm.
0: yeah i think jeff's just- Delighted by the news of another Passive House convert as well, yeah, <laughs> resident yeah. zealot.
2: No, that was that,
0: <laughs> that, that was
1: um, that was great to see. Um, you know, my my experience as Passive House designer, I've seen that firsthand. So to see other developers kind of get the value of of that and not just see it as a difficult thing to do, but get get the value and and you're right to see sustainable homes low carbon homes as a challenge that isn't isn't this big thing that we can do i think that start and the supply chain then starts to get on board you start having more options for whether it's windows or or, or ventilation systems That becomes a lot easier to do the costs come down and we saw that with you know the excitement around mmc the three of the case studies used a timber or a steel um off-site panel and and the design and development teams really got involved in that and they love that that they, and so I think if you, if you take that positive story and you spin it with, with the, some of the low carbon approaches to air tightness and thermal bridging and, and, and the equipment, of course, the heat pumps and the ventilation system, then I think people will get on board and, you're right, and shake that lazy thinking, shake that cultural inertia that we seem to have and, and, and show people the upside of, of, of doing this, the positive news of, of doing this. Yeah.
3: And I suppose uh, the other thing was people were keen, you know, they're saying there's a lack of knowledge, a lack of availability and a lack of information. So the developers need to get enough confidence that if they're doing something a bit different, that it will perform. And then when they have confidence that it will perform, then they'll be able to promote their homes yes. as having this performance. Exactly. And they'll find that the demand is there. It's just and, that and they it's, can
1: sell them for more. They can sell the homes for more if they have that confidence there. That, that's know, really important the, to the, the downturn. You know, I mean,
2: yeah, that's, that's when it's really, I think this stuff is really going to start to come into its own in more difficult housing markets,
1: you know? Um, yeah. I mean, not the case studies, but we did some, uh, wider stakeholder interviews with developers who were delivering, um, you know, passive house projects and other, and other low carbon designs, and they were showing, demonstrating higher sales values you know, to three, 5% more, which they could be confident in marketing as this is a certified passive house. This is something that's going to be very low energy bills and therefore sell that whereas you know i think the mainstream is not quite there yet they don't have the confidence they don't have the knowledge the sales teams don't have the knowledge to sell that so therefore it's it's just reinforcing you know you don't then get extra sales do you, you don't get extra sales value if you don't even try and sell it so there is a huge market opportunity on the one side we saw consumers say they want They're willing to pay more for these homes, or some of them percentage are willing to pay more for a low carbon home. And on the other side, you've got developers not offering that and not um, not you know being selling them that. So I think there is a gap there in the market for sure, certainly at scale. I
3: understand that the expectation is if you're buying a low carbon home, you will have lower energy bills. Yeah, that's
1: the risk. Yeah,
3: that's got to be. That's why it's got to be the focus. That's why the quality. On site, that's why the information and the you know absence of sloppiness is essential. Because if people buy a low carbon home and find that it maybe has a, a, a constraint or a challenge just in terms of how you manage it or what you need to do or how you need to be informed, and it's not saving you any money. In fact, the energy bills might be higher. Then. You know the reputation is shot to pieces yeah so we're yeah. we at a bit of a tipping point where the industry has to get it right because the expectations of what a low carbon low energy home will deliver you know never has there been a time when people are more focused on what energy bills are mm-hmm. so if low energy bills can be delivered the appetite is there but it's going to grow yeah. But if it's If it's done badly, then, um, you know, that door is shut for another decade. And as a a species, we can't afford to have the door shut for a decade. But there's also a lot of lessons that do apply. And again, they're probably not teased out as clearly as they could be. Apply to the retrofit market. And it's around managing expectations and quality of workmanship and quality of handover. And all of that is translatable to the 21 million homes that need, need refurbishment.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I saw that raging last night on heat pump Twitter or heating Twitter where such such a thing does exist. I I just had a few follows, but like after the, was it Centrical British Gas announced that they're they're wading into the market and they just met so much shade because like it's complex and you know, a supplier or provider like that is going to productize it, systematize it. So it's not going to accommodate user needs. Or mm. the idiosyncrasies of every single bloody installation. Ah, um, mm. oh, all right. Anything anyone wants to add? Because I can see we're we're fairly long uh, on time now. Anything that you you wanted to get across that we haven't had a chance to to throw in?
3: Just the value the value of doing the research, and I, and I guess almost a plea to people to take part in it. Um, and I don't mean just occupants, but I mean, I mean, developers. you know, as as Tom said, they gained a lot from it. Mm. And the sort of sense of, oh, but do we want to wash our dirty laundry in public if it's not the best success ever? Well, actually, what you learn from having ear on your project, what you learn from having thermal imaging and Tom's team going around looking at construction details is immensely valuable. So kind of, I guess we're saying. Don't fear somebody looking at what you're doing. Embrace it, because ultimately the, the benefits will
0: be there in what you learn by participating. Yeah. Well, on another project, a messaging project around the same sort of sphere, through the research that we were doing, we found out that the, the guys who'd undertaken low-carbon learning at best, the outcome for the business was, if my guys understand how win, uh, why windows are leaky uh, and how it affects stuff, we get fewer leaky windows. So the, the the all of the projects, less snagging, saves time. Get it right first time or as close as you can. All right. Um, well, in that case, I'll wrap up. I just wanted to add uh, something we didn't touch on uh, in the conversation was this project was based on England and Wales, excluding Northern Ireland and Scotland. Yep. However, it's absolutely relevant to them and further afield because the paradigm is much the same everywhere in the world. And this is particularly apposite following for Scotland, uh, following Patrick Harvey's Passive House announcement, or equivalent, obviously, uh, the other week. Um, So do more research.
1: Yes, please. Yeah.
0: Not just you, everyone. And make it open source as well.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean that—that that was a finding that we need uh, an open source hub of learning, and we have had the zero carbon hub, for example. I know Wales are now going to do a zero carbon hub. So we've got the future homes hub. So I guess it remains to be seen how how important that is. But but is there a way we can pull together all these private BPE studies that are happening, post occupancy evaluation, but various consultants, various companies are doing? Can we pile it into an open source website yes. that we could share? And, and and chat about but what's the, best.
0: We can. Jeff is in the middle of kickstarting that project again, uh, the Low Energy Building the Database. The Low Energy
1: Building Database. I was hoping you were going to say that, yeah, because that's a great database a really good resource. And, and let's talk to the Building Performance Network and Good Homes Alliance. They've got a lot of data so we can combine forces. And I know the UK Green Building Council are running this net zero um, standard and they've collected a lot of studies. So if we can pull them together, I feel that would break down the barrier yeah. of knowledge and skills at consultancy level and yeah. installer level. Yeah, for, for sure. Yeah. I'll try not to be protective and try and, try and um, uh, be generous and, and
2: work together where we can, you know, with this yeah. yeah, most definitely.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Um, It's been pleasure. a pleasure meeting you both. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll carry on the conversation at other points elsewhere, but, uh, yeah. Cheers. Right.
1: Thanks yeah. a million. Yeah. yeah. Thank you.
0: Thanks. Bye. Cool. And everyone else, thanks for listening. Uh, and join the ECB. Join Acan. Subscribe Passive S+, Plus. Advertise if you can. Subscribe. Review. What are the other things? Oh, I don't matter. All right. Cheers. Bye.